Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now skip down to verse 9, please. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. I'd like to talk to you tonight about God's guiding star. You can be seated. God's guiding star. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us a four-dimensional view of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Each have their own angle on the story with a slightly different audience, specifically and generally everyone. Matthew would be more the Jewish Christian gospel. Matthew's purpose is to prove that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah of Old Testament prophecies, that all the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Matthew does this primarily by showing that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures. Although all the Gospels share Old Testament references, there are nine proof texts that Matthew specifically uses. In the book of Matthew, he gives us over 60 Old Testament references, 40 direct quotes, and according to the Blue Letter Bible, Matthew has 96 Old Testament references compared to the book of Mark with 34, the book of Luke with 58, the book of John with 49. So Matthew is intentionally heavy on quoting the Old Testament because he wants his Jewish audience to understand that God has come in flesh and that Jesus Christ fulfilled those prophecies when he was born of a virgin in a barn in Bethlehem. Matthew 1 and 1, Matthew makes it clear who Jesus was. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew gives us three sets of 14 generations of the lineage of Jesus, leading us back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. God made unconditional promises to Abraham and to David. To Abraham, God promised a land that would be the possession of his descendants forever. To David, God gave prophecies that he would give him a house, a kingdom, a throne that would be established forever. It was confirmed in Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4. Matthew shows the legal descent of Jesus Christ from Abraham through David. He shows Joseph, who was not his biological father, to be his, uh, his legal father. Matthew proves the royal lineage of Jesus Christ. So it is fitting that Matthew alone would tell us the story of three wise men who had come to worship him that was born king of the Jews. The visit of the wise men to visit Jesus Christ occurred during the reign of Herod the Great. There are three significant Herods in the ministry of Jesus But this is Herod the Great. It is significant that these magi, these wise men, somehow knew 
that there would be a king who would be born king of the Jews. He would be a deliverer. And they would come to Jerusalem with the express purpose of worshiping the king of the Jews born somewhere. They didn't know where exactly. Now, we know that this story involved the star. The star that they saw in the east or as some translations say, probably most appropriately, the rising star. They saw a rising star in the east, and they connected it with something they had heard from Jewish people probably about the birth of the king of the Jews. I've already read it, but look at it again, Matthew 2 and 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king... Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. These wise men were sages, perhaps priests in their own religion, men who gave wisdom. They were obviously involved in astronomy, perhaps astrology, looking at the stars, trying to ascertain what the message of the stars was to them. We don't know exactly where they were from. They were wise men from the east. They could have been from Persia, Arabia, perhaps Babylonia. Some scholars would lean toward Babylonia. I'm fine to be silent where the Bible is silent. But you can have some conjecture just for thought of where these men originated. If it was Babylonia, there was a large contingent of Jews living there. And perhaps that's where they heard about a Messiah who was to come and be born king of the Jews. They're going to travel to the capital of Israel because that's where you would naturally go. If a king has been born, he's probably the son of the king. And you're going to the the seat of the empire, you're going to the capital city. They had no idea when they arrived in Jerusalem that this king was going to be born outside of the existing political system. Now, when Herod heard about this, uh, he was deeply troubled. Matthew 2 and 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, here are these three non-Jews who have come a long, long way, And they cannot wait to come worship this king who was born to the Jews. And Herod and all Jerusalem, instead of rejoicing, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. That was the story of the shepherds a couple Wednesdays ago. They're troubled. They don't like what they hear. Sounds like there's a conspiracy. There's an illegitimate king born. Where is he? Who is he? What are we going to do about this? Now, the fact that Herod would be angry is pretty clear. It's not his boy, not his baby, not his lineage, not his grandson. So yeah, he's troubled at the words of the wise men that they're looking for someone who has been born king of the Jews. When you read a little bit about Herod's history, you kind of see that he was a paranoid person. In his insecurity, he had his own sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, 
executed in 7 B.C. Toward the end of his life, he was very sick. And he changed his will regarding his successor three times in a short period of time before his death in the spring of 4 B.C. The story goes like this. In 7 B.C., he names Antipor his sole heir. In 5 B.C., he draws a new will, making Antipas his heir. Then, five days before his death, Antipater is executed, and the final will is drawn up, naming Archelaus the king of the whole realm. You can see Herod is super insecure, very paranoid. He doesn't know who to trust. And now you imagine a guy like that hearing these three wealthy or however many wealthy wise men roll into town. They've got treasures with them. I don't think they were riding just the three or how many of them. We know there were three gifts, so that's where we come up with three wise men. We just know wise men from the east. But I see a caravan of people coming. They're not coming with all this gold, frankincense, and myrrh unguarded. They roll into town. This is a big deal. Herod doesn't meet them initially, but he's, he's just worried, sick about who this is. So he's got to do something about this. Kind of controls his anger, his jealousy. Verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now the chief priest, we know chief priest, the chief priests would later become the enemies of Jesus. They would conspire to kill him. The, the scribes or the theologians of the day, they are the ones who were the authoritative interpreters of the scripture. And so they all get together. They know the Bible. They're theologians. So they give Herod an answer. And they point to a verse that we would know by thank God our referencing system of chapters and verses as Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Matthew 2, 5 and 6. And they said unto him, and we asked, where is he going to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Herod knows it's Bethlehem. He tells the wise men, calls them aside privately. I'm sure he's all smiles. Verse 7, And Herod, when he had privily or privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. I'm sure he was saying things like, I'm so excited about this news. Tell me, when did you see this star? And so, they share some information that we just kind of surmise from the story. When later Herod kills all the boy babies in the area of Bethlehem that are two years of age and younger, maybe there's a little insurance in the age. He wipes out all those baby boys. Some records say that it may have been as few as 20 
people. Bethlehem's a little town. It's just the boys, two years of age and younger. But it's a, a slaughter there of infant boys. We don't know exactly how many. He sends them on, her way, on their way. And he tells them this in verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. What a sinister man. To worship him with the sword, maybe. So then... I want you to think about the nature of the star that the wise men first saw, the rising star in the east, and then the star that we're going to read about in verse 9. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And the wise men left Herod's palace, left Jerusalem. They're going to Bethlehem. The star reappears. But now it seems to be much closer. It's not a distant star. It's a star that's guiding them. It reminds me, and I'm not saying it is this at all. It reminds me of the pillar of fire in the wilderness, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that you could actually follow. When's the last time you followed a star to a specific spot? I don't think you can do that. Took them on a journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, right to the exact street, to the right house that Joseph had rented, maybe, I don't know. Or he, Mary, and I think the toddler Jesus. We're there. Now I know I'm messing up your theology unless you've heard me teach about this through the years. Because I just messed up a great nativity scene. Because we've got to have sheep, oxen, a really pretty manger, a baby, Joseph and Mary, and we've got the wise men over here, and then there are camels and gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the shepherd saw a baby in a manger... The wise men come to see a young child in a house. So, that's just the way the story goes. They came to the house where the young child was. Stood over where the young child was. We'll see the house later. So anyway, somehow this star got them there. And it's significant to my message tonight. And uh, we'll talk about this as we roll along in this message. So, through the years I've read a lot of conjecture about the star. What was the Bethlehem star? What was the rising star that the wise men saw in the east? There have been astronomers and biblical historians that have debated this for centuries, trying to ascertain what was that star? What was it? And there are three, kind of they boil it down probably to three guesses. They're guesses. The first is that it might have been a comet. Comets have long been held to herald the arrival of important figures on the world stage. And a comet visible in the western sky might well explain the journey of the Magi. I mean, they've come a long, long way because of something they saw rising in the east in their country. 
But astronomers have been unable to identify a comet which would have been visible about the right historical date. Halley's Comet appeared at 12 to 11 B.C., so that would have been much too soon for that to have been what the wise men saw. There are others that say maybe it was a confluence or a conjunction of the planets rather than a single star, an alignment of planets. The favorite candidates for that would have been Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces, which would have taken place about 7 B.C., and that would have been interpreted to mean the birth of a king. Because to them, Jupiter was the royal planet in Palestine, and Saturn was thought to be the planet representing the Westland, while the constellation of Pisces represented the last days. So the, the idea is that maybe, everybody say maybe, maybe the wise men said, when we see these two planets, Jupiter and Saturn and Pisces, that all of this is telling us that there will appear in Palestine in this year the ruler of the last days. This plus that equals something. And then there are some that think that maybe it was a nova or perhaps a supernova. You know, a nova is a result of a stellar explosion that produces an extremely bright light that can last for a number of months. And this was the preferred theory by Johann Kepler, even though he also liked the planetary idea as a possibility. It's all just guesses. And that took place maybe around 7 B.C. Chinese astronomers recorded a nova, which was visible for 70 days from 5 to 4 B.C., which had fit a date shortly before the death of Herod. Now... I was reading about this, and I've studied this for years, but I like, to, I like to take a fresh look at things because I have new resources and better resources than ever before. So I like what I'm going to, I don't always read from a commentary too much, but let me just share something that, that, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. While proponents, at least the second and third of the above theories, are convinced that their astronomical results sufficiently match Matthew's decision, those of us who are not astronomers may find it hard to envision either these phenomena first rising and then leading on the Magi and eventually coming to rest in such a way to indicate a specific location. Even when due allowance is made for the phenomenal viewpoint of the storyteller's language, and despite the fascination of astronomical explanations, it may in the end be more appropriate to interpret Matthew 2 and 9 as describing not a regular astronomical occurrence, but the miraculous provision of what appeared to be a star which uniquely moved and stopped or at least appeared to the observers on the ground over a specific place. So, all of that to say, a long time ago, studying everything I could get my hands on, I believe, that the star that the wise men saw in the east was supernaturally placed there by God. Perhaps it was something there, but it's the same star. However they identified it in the east, now it is before them and they can follow it down the road, down the street, to the house. And Joseph is not there this evening, by the way. 
And it pauses over a house and it lets them know this is the exact location where you are going to find the one who was born king of the Jews. I think it is pretty incredible. Matthew 2 and 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When you think about who they were and the journey they had just made and what they brought and that the star that they saw whenever it was, perhaps two years before in the east, has now reappeared. It it, it seems that all of this time on the journey, they didn't follow the star from the east to Jerusalem. They just knew that you go to the capital city. And here they are, wicked Herod, insincere scribes and chief priests, sincere wise men looking for a Savior. And God cares enough about them finding Him that He leads them to the specific spot where they can find Jesus Christ. That also is pretty awesome. Verse 11. And when they were coming to the house, they, everybody say house, just so you get that right. I'm not trying to crash your Christmas party. (laughs) When they came into the house, they saw the young child, not the infant, wrapped in swaddling clothes. They saw the young child with Mary his mother. And this is really not so much part of my message tonight. But these astute, wealthy, respected, wise men fell down and worshipped a little, I don't know, it's pretty small, A little boy named Jesus. He wasn't wearing a crown. He wasn't in a palace. There was nothing about the setting that was spectacular. It was pretty common. Mary and Joseph, we already know from the offering, when they bring Jesus for dedication, they offer two turtle doves. If they would have had the means, it would have been a more significant sacrifice like sheep. The turtle doves were the offerings of the poor. Mary and Joseph are just in a little, I don't know, a one-bedroom apartment. They're in a little house. And these men of great means fall down on their faces. And I just want to say this, you know, not really, again, part of my message. But I wonder who do we think we are at times when we try to be so poised and professional and protected and proud about our worship to the Lord. That we don't want to be too demonstrative or too out of the way or too humble by our worship. And these men don't care. They paid a great price to be here anyway. They fell down and worshipped him. I'm back to verse 11 again. And when they had opened their treasures... They presented unto him gifts, gold, 
frankincense, and myrrh. Stars hovering over the house. Wealthy, educated, respected, wise men on their faces. Uninhibited worship to Jesus Christ. Open their treasures. Now, before they left home, they packed their bags. I don't think they picked up the gold on the way. They didn't buy it at the flea market in Jerusalem. They didn't pick it up at the Dollar General in Bethlehem. They opened their treasures. And they gave to Jesus Christ gifts that were fit for a king. Gold is gold, in case you didn't know. Frankincense is a bitter and fragrant gum, but very expensive. Myrrh was a species of gum. Both these spices were used in, for medicinal purposes and also in embalming. And some have wondered if maybe there was a little kind of a foretelling of the future of Jesus Christ, that he would have spices that were used in embalming that were given him at his birth that would point toward his death. But regardless, these wise men, not knowing any of that, are simply bringing gifts fit for a king. Verse 12. And being warned of God in a dream, that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And every preacher would like to say, when you see Jesus, you should leave a different way than you came. But that's not really the point here, is that God gave them a dream to say, don't go back to Herod. When I get to this tonight, but later when Herod sees he's mocked of the wise men, that he doesn't come back to them, that's when he orders the slaughter of all the baby boys two years of age and younger in Bethlehem. Joseph is warned in a dream to take Jesus and Mary down into Egypt. And I've often wondered if the gold, frankincense, and myrrh helped finance that trip. And later, which is a sermon I preached here several years ago, there is a prophecy fulfilled when again in the dream the Lord says, take him back. And the Lord said, out of Egypt have I called my son. They're warned in a dream. They go back another way. So through this dream, God is protecting his man, who is still a little boy, and he is protecting his plan. And I believe if, if you have God's hand on your life, that you don't have to fear Herod or anyone else. Because God takes care of his plan. And he takes care of the men and women who are part of his plan. And it doesn't matter what evil plot the gates of hell may plan against you. None of those plans ever materialize because God always protects his plan and the people who are part of his plan so you don't need to live in fear. Now I want to throw a thought in here and a couple things that are part of where I'm going here in some application points. Joseph is spoken to in a dream at least three times. To take Mary as his wife, to flee to Egypt, and then to go to Nazareth instead of Bethlehem. In this case, Joseph knew the facts of Herod's son reigning, but God still warns him. But it's interesting to me that God 
shows these wise men a star and then a star and then he warns them at the end by a dream. So I want, to, I want you to think about some things tonight and I want to talk about God's guiding light as it applies to this story and as it applies to God's work in our lives. Let's think about this just a little while. It seems to me from experience and from the scripture that God speaks to you in ways that you relate to and understand. These wise men are astronomers. They study the stars. And so God speaks to them through a star. Astronomers see a star. And then he uses that star, but I think in another dimension somehow, to guide them, of course, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Later in the story, I just mentioned it, when God gives them a dream, God could have given them a dream when they were in the east, right? But he used a star because he spoke to them through a means that they would relate to and understand. When God is leading us, he very often plants a seed of faith in us so we believe his word. It's apparent that someone Jewish shared the hope of a Messiah with these wise men. We do not know who is responsible for this witness or how long it took for this seed to grow until they saw this star rising in the east. But someone planted a seed of faith in the heart and minds of these wise men that would later produce this story. You never know how something you say to a person you meet may plant a seed of faith in them that later God would use to guide them to Him, just like He guided the wise men. Now the book, the Bible is not a book that tells us everything about everyone all the time. The Bible is a book that tells us what we need to know about God's unfolding plan of redemption for mankind. So, we don't know the name of the person that shared this with the wise men or if they studied in a synagogue somewhere in Babylon or Persia or, or wherever. But we just know that they knew something that could have only come from a, an Old Testament Bible that a Jewish person knew. I've wondered, you know, as I thought about this story again, it's really not important the name of the person who shared this, but, but it could have been like a little servant girl, like the girl who told Naaman that there was a prophet in Israel who could recover him of his leprosy. It could have been a merchant, a shopkeeper. It, it could have been a neighbor. We don't know how the wise men knew, but, but someone told them something. When I was reading this, I ran across something. I don't know why. I never put this in. I've never really talked about this scripture before. But do you remember the prophet Balaam? 
who was hired by Balak to prophesy against Israel, to curse them. And, and every time he tried to curse them, he blessed them. One of those times, Balaam, the guy whose donkey talked to him, remember him? In Numbers 24, 17, Balaam gave this prophecy. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth or Seth. Now, we don't know if that's the prophecy that they hung their hopes on, but there was this prophecy by Balaam of all people about a star. Balaam was connected to people from the east, so I don't know, it doesn't matter. But somehow, God got a word into the hearts of wise men in the east that would change their life forever and make them part of the Christmas story. We're talking about insights or application in the story of God's guiding star. I want you to know that God can use any means He chooses to guide you to Him and to guide other people to the reality of who He is. In the east is that distant star. In Jerusalem, it's ungodly Herod. If Herod doesn't summon the chief priests and scribes, the wise men have no idea where else to go. God uses an ungodly king. God uses most likely insincere chief priests and scribes to share a scripture that the wise men do not know. We don't know what they knew. It doesn't tell us. But they do not know Micah 5 and 2. They do not know he's going to be born in Bethlehem. God is sovereign and he does things in amazing ways. Wicked king, theologians, information from a suspicious source to point them to Bethlehem. And this is personal focused star that reappears to them. Jesus' age, Joseph and Mary. Joseph is not at home. All of that I've already said. All supernatural all God ordained. Star in the east, the witness of someone, travel to Jerusalem, insight to go to Bethlehem, the guiding star standing over the house, all of that. As I kind of pondered this story, I'll talk about Mary pondering on Sunday, Lord willing, capturing Christmas. I know this is kind of a cliche through the years. Wise men still seek him. Wise women still seek him. But I want to encourage you to be like these wise men and follow God's guiding star in your life. Obviously, I'm not talking about a literal star. But follow the leadership of the Lord in your life. Now, I want to give a disclaimer, not in my notes, but, but the will of God and the guiding of God will never contradict the Word of God. 
We have a more sure word of prophecy. If you get a vision, a dream, a prophecy, a tongues and interpretation, somebody comes and tells you something that is against the Bible, you believe the Bible. It doesn't mean that's an evil person. It just means they're a person. and They're not uh, infallible. And God's holy word is. And we elevate the Bible above everything. Right? Because it represents the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It represents the voice of God to us. It is the Word of God, literally. But here's what I see in this story. That if you will do what you know to do, the Lord will lead you further. So think about this. I know, this is, I know you see this already. If you're a wise man in the East, you hear the story of a Jewish king, you see the star, and that's it. It's just way up there somewhere. And you put two and two together. Prophecies, maybe that's the prophecy of Balaam, a star. And you put two and two together, and you, you just say, we've got to go to Jerusalem. You have to act on what you know before God tells you more. If they do not go from the east to Jerusalem, they never hear the chief priests and scribes share Micah 5 and 2. They never leave Jerusalem going to Bethlehem. And they never see the star that seems to be distant become near. So you have to do what you know to do. I'm amazed at how many people want God to show them something 20 years in the future They want God to reveal all the mysteries and yet they will not do what they know full well to do. If you're holding a grudge against someone and you won't forgive them, you know to do that. So, well, I don't understand what the little toe on Daniel's image is all about. Don't worry about that. Just repent of the sin in your life. (laughs) Quit being a hypocrite, you know. That's simple. You know that. We all know that. If you know to do good, do it. And if you don't, it's sin, right? So so here's these wise men. In order for them to get to Jesus, they have to act on what they already know before they're ever going to know more. So you have to be like a wise man and act on what you've heard. In their sincerity, they packed their bags, gathered a caravan, kissed their families goodbye for several months at least. Wonder how far they traveled, depending on where they were from, right? We don't know. But it could have been 400 miles or farther. If it was, if they rode on camels, it could have been a couple weeks. If they, rode, if they walked, it could have been a month, one way. This was a big deal. They're on a long journey to find the king of the Jews. You think about this. If it's 400 miles, and I don't know. They come 400 miles on a star they see in the east. And when they get there, they are only five miles from Jesus. Maybe five and a half, maybe six at the most. You come 400 miles, you're five miles from Jesus. But you can't get to him without him showing you more. You act on what you know. Obey what you know. So God will show you more. They've got to prepare before they leave home with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And in the process of acting on what they knew, God was able to show them a whole lot more. For decades, I've been asked to teach a lesson on the will of God to young people. I'm sure I've shared this here through the years, maybe in bits and pieces. But when I talk about the will of God to young people, I tell them the will of God is like a rose. You have to let it unfold. But I also say the will of God is like a puzzle. Now this is my illustration. Jesus could talk about a gate and bread and he could give examples. This is my example about the will of God. The will of God is like a puzzle. My wife loves puzzles. I like the finished product. For many years as our boys were growing up at Christmas time, set up a card table, she would get a thousand piece puzzle. I'm like, why in the world would you take a beautiful picture and cut it in a thousand pieces and have to sit there for hours meticulously putting it together? That is not my personality. I have a few times, not enough, sat there working on the puzzle, but not long. But if you're going to put a puzzle together, all of you puzzle people, where do you start? You start on the corners, right? Why do you start on the corners? It's easy. It's obvious, right? I mean, I could do that. (laughs) I could even do that. And then after you get the corners, what's next? The border, right? Because it has a straight edge on one side. And that's, that's, that's obvious, right? Now, I know you want to know what the picture is. I know you have a box. Forget that you have the picture, right? Just pretend like all you have is a thousand pieces. And you have no idea what it's going to look like. And everybody wants to know, what is it going to look like? What is it going to look like? Every young person wants to know, where am I going to work? Who am I going to marry? What am I going to live? Where am I going to live? You know, where am I going to work? Whatever, I just messed it up. You understand? You have all these questions. All these questions about what is this picture going to look like when I'm finished? And God is saying, why don't you do what you know to do? Why don't you take care of the conspicuous things in your life? Do what is obvious and quit wanting the obscure before you do the obvious. If you want to know the will of God, do the will of God. There are some things you know to do right now. So go ahead and start filling in the puzzle pieces as you can. And as you begin to put every piece where it belongs, God in His work, in your life, begins to show you more and the picture of your life, the unfolding picture of the puzzle of your life becomes more and more clear until you begin to see the picture. For me, when I look back, when I look back in my life, I can see the pieces that should have been, it just should have been so obvious to me. I had no idea when I was 8 and received the Holy Ghost and 12 or 16 that that I would be doing this right now in this season of my life. I had no idea. But I had some people that spoke into my life about doing what I knew to do to walk with God, to 
consecrate myself to Him. Get into the Bible, pray and fast. And raise my hand and let God know I cared about His kingdom and get involved teaching Sunday school and in bus ministry and do what I can for God now just to let Him know I care about your kingdom. Do what you know to do. And if you're a wise man or woman, if you do what you already know to do, don't expect God to, to guide you from Jerusalem to Bethlehem the last five miles when you know that star in the east indicated, go to Israel, go to Jerusalem. That's all you know, but just go there. And if you go there, God will show you the rest. You know when the picture finally comes together? It's probably when you breathe your last breath. The final piece is placed. And the puzzle is complete. And the full picture of your life will at last be clear. But really, I think it's more than that because the Bible says that we know in part. But when we see Him, we shall be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. That's probably really when it all makes sense on the other side in eternity. I believe that knowing God comes in the journey. And I want to show you some scriptures to show you this. Hosea 6 and 3. And I understand the context of these prophecies and scriptures, but their truth, the principles stand alone in these verses. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning and He shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. But I want you to see this idea that we will know if we follow on to know the Lord. Do what you already know to do. Jeremiah 29, 13. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Proverbs 4, 18. And I've spoken about this before on a Wednesday night several years ago. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more into the perfect day. The imagery of Proverbs 4.18 is of a sunrise. And that the light of God shines more and more till high noon to a perfect day. So that is the way God leads us. Step at a time. What happened to the people of the Bible who walked with God? That's really what this is, right? It is a walk. It is daily. It is a journey from here to eternity. It is the process of sanctification where we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, actually becoming holy. All of the things that happened to the wise men happened for one purpose. They happened to lead them To Jesus Christ. And everything that God is doing in your life is to lead you to a fuller knowledge of Him. It is like Paul who says, I follow after. I want to know Him. I'm seeking after Him. Thirsting. All the words of the Bible 
A people who had a passion and heart for God. And is reaching after Him. So I want to ask you, what is the Lord wanting to show you in your life? Where is the Lord leading you? Are you willing to pay the price the wise men paid to get to Jesus? Are you listening to His voice? Are you a sincere seeker or are you a casual observer? You have to want to see Him to ultimately see Him. There was a sincerity and a desire in the wise men to seek the Lord, even though they were not of a Jewish background. No heritage and truth. And the saying that has been common through the years is still true tonight, that wise men and wise women still seek Him. So I wanted to just share some insights tonight about God's guiding star. If you don't mind, please stand. Right where you're standing. Some of you are wanting to know the big picture. And all you have is a puzzle piece. So I want to encourage you to just courageously put that puzzle piece in place. What is that puzzle piece? Move to Anchorage? You know, it's probably an act of obedience in your walk with God. Something that you know to do that you've just kind of shoved aside. You're asking God to reveal the obscurity of His great will when you're kind of holding back from doing the obvious. So right now, I'd like for us to pray and ask the Lord to give us the courage to be obedient to His voice, to have the kind of heart that these wise men had led them from so far away in the east all the way to the exact location that would lead them to Jesus. Would you pray with me right now? I'm going to turn on my mic just for a minute while we pray. you're able, would you step from where you are and gather at the altar or move closer if you can. Let's open our hearts to the guidance of God in our lives. God's guiding star.